Episode 96, Melissa Perry, author of the book, Escaping the Build Trap, How Effective Product Management Creates Real Value. And I started monitoring the Google Analytics and I found that first day we got a bunch of people logging in. Second day, a couple people logging in. Third day, nobody logging in. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links about Melissa's work and books and more, go to markraven.com slash mistake96. Our guest today is Melissa Perry. She's the founder and CEO of Products Labs. She's a senior lecturer at the Harvard Business School, where she teaches product management. And she's also the founder and lead instructor of the Product Institute. So before I tell you a little bit more about Melissa, let me say first off, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So Melissa, I'm going to tell you more about her. She has a book called Escaping the Build Trap, How Effective Product Management Creates Real Value. And that's something we're going to be able to dig into today. Um, She has a podcast called Product Thinking with uh, Melissa Perry. And um, I I should have checked in advance, like the way things change in in this fast move. Yes, that's all still accurate. All the things I do. (laughs) Uh, I run a, (laughs) it's like silly. I feel like, oh yeah, there's one more thing to add on there. Um, I run a a program called CPO Accelerator for uh, VPs of product to learn how to take the leap into the executive suite. So that's the last thing on my very long list of things that I do. Um, But that's fairly new. We've run three sessions so far. And I'm really excited because one of our uh, participants from our January cohort was a VPO product at her company. It just went through a giant merger, huge growth stage company in London, and she was just named chief product officer. So I'm very excited that it's it's working. <laughs> well, good. I'm sure it's going to continue working. So I hope people will check that out. And then the other things I was going to add, um, my, my mistake here, there's the rest of the bio. Um, Melissa is a highly sought after keynote speaker. She's addressed audiences in over 35 countries. I think that's where I first learned who you were was probably at Lean Startup Week conference. I think I saw you yep. speak. Yeah, definitely. I think we were, yeah, it was definitely one of the Lean Startup conferences. Um, or, yeah, that, that's where I think we were the last time. And uh, also in the uh, the Lean um, Toyota Kata type stuff in the Lean Kanban world, we were, we were kind of floating around there too. So I've been following you on Twitter for quite a while. Yeah. Well, likewise, I'm I'm kind of on the periphery of some of those worlds. That's more of your core professional home base. The Toyota Lean stuff, I kind of float in and out, but but it's cool to see it like apply to so many different industries, which is cool. Yeah, for sure. And we we do have a little bit of overlap um, educationally, Um, similar degrees. Melissa has a bachelor's in operations research and information engineering from Cornell University, which is close enough my field of industrial engineering. I think there's a lot of overlap there as well. Yep. They actually used to call it, they changed the name of it from industrial to information engineering while I was at Cornell. And I was like, what does that mean? And they were like, we don't, we don't know, but we're going to change the name. <laughs> it does sound more modern. Industrial does have kind of a dusty 
It has a dusty connotation to it. Yeah. I also can tell you, I don't know anything really. Like it definitely didn't concentrate on the industrial engineering part. Like if you asked me about that, I don't think I would be able to answer any questions. Well, even the professional association changed its name from the Institute of Industrial Engineers to the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers, which might be as vague, but maybe again, more modern. Interesting. So, uh, Melissa, before we talk about um, your book and your other work, um, we'll kind of dive in as we normally do here. What would you say, looking back at your work, the different things you've done, what, what, what is your favorite mistake? Yeah, I think my favorite mistake kind of set me on the path that I'm on now. Um, and that was really when I was a product manager at OpenSky, which was the first startup that I joined way back when. Um, I had kind of come in there. I was employee number like 35. We were a uh, e-commerce startup in New York City. Um, I came in there as a product manager and I had been doing product management at very large companies before like banks and uh, financial you know, companies that all operated in a very, what we call now waterfall way. And uh, back then I was just taught like, this is the way you do your job. I was like, cool. Um, came into the startup. And uh, the CTO I had previously worked for um, about like a couple of years prior was the one who brought me in. So he left a big company, went for the startup and then said, hey, I need you to come in and do what you were doing for me there. Here, we need some rigor. We need some process. I need you to write specification documents, like dive in and get going. So I did. I walked in and I was like, all right, I can do this. Let's start specking everything out, write these long, long specification documents, um, shipped them off to the engineers and you know, waited to see what would happen if they would actually like, you know, build it. And uh, I remember the first time I did that three weeks later, they were like, okay, it's ready for you to QA. I went in there, started looking at the product and it was, uh, it was nothing that I specified at all. (laughs) So it was like, I was like, where the hell did you get this from? Like, did you you make it up? Like, where did it come from? Um, And that's when I realized like what I was doing was not going to work here. Uh, The, the, Engineers were like, no, I'm not going to read a 30 page document. Like I'm used to making open source uh, products and like doing fun engineering stuff like the hell I'm going to read this. So I that's when I first got introduced to Agile. And uh, our one of the guys on the team after we had been button heads with me and the whole team like for eh, I'd say probably a good three months um, of me trying to get them force them to read things. And they were like, no, he was like, let's try this thing called Agile. I'm an agile coach. Technically he's like, I'm also, he was a software engineer for us. It wasn't like he was hired to be an agile coach. He was, he just had happened to be certified in it. And we're like, okay, we'll try whatever because we all hate each other right now. Let's, let's get this. Let's fix this. So we ended up learning um, some basic scrum. We started just really like talking about what we were doing instead of me going off in a corner and writing a big specification document and coming back. And we found that just that lightweight process and the meetings that we spent together, it, it helped so much. And we got it down to where I'd write like a one pager and then just spec everything out in user stories. And we we started like cruising as a team after that. Like a year later, we were just so effective and operating like crazy, crazy, crazy good. And I, I was pretty excited about that. But what I realized at that point, um, this was the biggest mistake, like that was definitely a mistake, but the biggest mistake I had been making came through a realization of when we started to measure the success of our product. Um, so we had been like cruising our, 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 I loved my team, loved hanging out with the guys. Like 
we we all just got along so so well and we were really effective building lots of stuff so we kept getting harder and harder projects thrown to us and we had scaled the company now i came in at like employee 35 we had 150 people we were nearing 200 people um at this point and tons and tons of traffic coming to the site massive you know it's scaling we're raising a lot of money scaling pretty fast and uh, we had this one project that our CEO gave us where he said, in order to keep scaling, we can't hire millions of people to like service our customers. And, and uh, we, we had these curators on our site who would like pick out the products that we would sell. He's like, we have no way except just calling them on the phone to like work with them. We need to like start to automate this, start to build these dashboards and stuff for them. So uh, we got handed the task of figuring out how to do that. Like, how do we build a system where these curators can pick out the products and manage their businesses and see everything? You can think of it as like people had stores kind of like Etsy, but we did all of the sourcing of it and the selling. So we needed somebody to pick out those products. Um, So I went out and I mocked everything up. We made it really nice. And then we broke it down into our agile sprints. And we spent like a long time, we, we had gone out and asked curators like, what do you want to see? And I started taking like a list of requirements, right? We started using our agile process to break it down, put it out there and build it. And uh, about three months later, we're ready to do like a big splashy launch. And we emailed everybody. And it was the first time that we ever used analytics on anything. Um, It wasn't really a thing back then. This is like over 10 years ago. And we put Google analytics on the product and told all the curators about it. They were like, so cool. Sounds great. Fantastic. Uh, and I started monitoring the Google analytics and I found that, you know, first day we got a bunch of people logging in. Second day, a couple people logging in. Third day, nobody logging in. Week later, nobody logging in. Month later, crickets. So it's, I'm like, what the hell's going on? Like, why, why are people not using our product what's happening here and I started contacting them especially the ones I took like the requirements from and I said you told me you wanted to build this stuff like us you wanted us to build this stuff what's going on like and they were like oh yeah you know in hindsight none of that's really necessary it's not really what I need right it's what I thought I wanted but it's not what I needed like I told you I wanted to see all these complicated financials of all the products we sell but I don't really care all I care about is profit I can't find profit because you buried it on the page somewhere, right? Like that, that type of stuff. And it made me go, oh my God, we just spent all this time building this stuff and never really stopped to think, was it the right thing to build? Like, is it really going to satisfy their problems? And that got me onto this journey of like figuring out what, how do we do that better? So I ended up going to um, a lean startup machine workshop uh, over a weekend uh, my boss was like, yeah, if you want to give up your weekend and go to this, this workshop, go for it. <laughs> yeah. And um, like two of the developers had gone uh, a month before in New York and they were like, oh, it's fantastic, Melissa. You're going to love it. And I was like, cool, I'll, I'll try anything. The, like, I, I want to go. I want to go see what it's like. And at the Lean Startup Machine Workshop, we started learning about like experimentation and treating building products just like a scientific formula. And to me, like coming from an engineering background, I was like, oh yeah, this is my jam. Like this is how my brain thinks, right? And I was very excited about that. Like I, I was like, yeah, eating this up. But I started looking at it and we were we were building like startup ideas. I don't, I've never been one to have like any really great startup ideas. Um, but I looked at it and I was like, I could use this process to prove out our products and our features that we're building at OpenSky. Um, so I went back 
And I was like, can I start doing this? And my boss was like, yeah, go for it. Like run some experimentation, run this. And we had um, a great CEO who was like super visionary and he had a million ideas. And I was like, great. Now I can actually test the ideas. Like, can I, can I go out? And everybody was super supportive about it, but they were like, yeah, do it, do it. So I started doing, I started getting the data and I was able to start proving, yes, this is what we should be doing versus this is what we should not be doing. And I remember the first like idea I pseudo killed, right. Um, came from the CEO. We tested it. We ran experiments and we found like that it did not, uh, it did not get the money, the revenue that we actually thought it would. Uh, but it actually ended up, and I didn't know this at the time. My, uh, my old VP of product actually told me this just like last year and it blew my mind, but he's like, Oh, I was cleaning out my inbox because he's leaving the company now. Um, he's like, I was cleaning out my inbox and I found the results of those experiments you run ran back in the day. And he's like, look at the chain discussion that this actually started. It ended up being the catalyst that like pivoted our entire company into what it is now. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize how much meaning those things had at the time for that company in particular, but I saw how powerful it was. Um, just to to have that concept of all our product ideas should be tested, right? Like an idea is just an idea and it doesn't matter if you, it, it doesn't matter unless it's going to get you some value, right? At the end of the day. So I guess making all those mistakes, right? Like doing that big three month long project, putting it out there, that really was my big mistake that started the catalyst of basically what I do now. Because once I ran those experiments, my boss, same boss was like, uh, was like, you need to show other people how you do this. He's like, I don't know any product managers who run these types of experiments or do this types of stuff. He's like, you should teach this stuff. And he actually was the one who pushed me to go teach it. Um, I started on Skillshare and then I uh, started doing workshops on it. And then I ended up building Product Institute and started helping all these companies. But it like really was the path that started all the stuff that I do today. So going back to the first part of the story about having the big specification documents, you know, I was involved yeah. in a startup software company in the 2001, 2002 timeframe. And you're right, there were the, the, these big documents. We had a product manager taking input from, from sales and from customers and from, from everybody writing these big, huge documents. So, you know, I mean, to, to be fair to you, that, that wasn't, it's not like that was uniquely your mistake. That was an, maybe an industry mistake. That was kind of the norm yeah. at the time, right? Mm -hmm. But maybe yeah, you were- Yeah, it was the norm. And I, th I still think like it is the norm in a lot of places, right? Like we, we get very attached to our ideas. I mean, this is why I'm still in business, but <laughs> it's like, it, there's tons of companies that are, are still figuring this out. And I think- just as humans, um, we're subject to so much bias where we're like attached to our ideas. We come up with something cool. We're like, oh, we have to build it. Um, so we're fighting against that. Plus we're fighting against um, product management is a kind of nascent discipline. There have been product managers out there for a very long time. Some people have been in this business for 20 years, 30 years, especially if they're coming out of Silicon Valley. But as a whole, What's happening is we're having a lot more companies starting to adopt software and thus starting to get product management for the first time. So it's becoming a more prevalent role, but we don't have enough people out there who have been doing it for so long that they're very well versed in these different techniques. So it still is a maturing industry. And I think companies are still trying to understand like how it works. So yeah, it is still, it's still out there, but definitely back in the day as well, like that's how we were all taught yeah. to do it. 
But so at least you recognize, all right, well, hey, this is too risky to do this big, huge batch, not communicating back and forth. There's risk of misunderstanding, miscommunication, just going off and doing our own thing. I mean, it seems like there's two pieces here that lead to this more experimental, lean startup type approach. I mean, one is the idea of smaller batches, you know, tighter collaboration, shorter cycles. But then the second thing is being open to the idea of like, oh, we might be wrong. It seems like people yeah. could adopt the first the small batches, but then stubbornly keep moving forward, even if the data and analytics say, oh, that wasn't a good idea. I see that all the time, all the time. Um, I've worked with tons of really large companies who are trying to transform into an agile company. And then the second thing that they do is like, okay, now we want to be like a lean product focused company. And that's usually where I came in in the past. Um, and we still do a lot of training around that, but what will happen. And so I don't, I don't get super deep on the consulting pieces with large companies anymore, but I used to, like I used to go in and coach these teams and, I worked with a lot of teams trying to adopt these lean startup-y type principles, the small batches, which is, you know, more lean. But, um, and I would train the teams and I would teach them how to do it. And I would teach them how to do MVPs and they would prove it was a bad idea or they'd prove that there was no strategy that actually aligned everything at the top of the company. And they were just experimenting to experiment. And we'd bring that to management and they just would say, I don't care, just build it. Right. So it's, it's, it's really interesting because there's only so much process you can teach people, right? If the culture doesn't change as well. And it is that willing to be wrong and the willing to say, hey, this might actually change the way that we work or the things that we produce. And, and for those who don't know the term, MVP is minimum viable product, um, comes from the lean um, startup space. And I mean, I think that idea in general, like for the work I do, let's say if we're doing process improvement in hospitals, Smaller batches, smaller tests of change, or when you can do it, are incredibly helpful to test a process on a small scale because you might be wrong instead of saying, well, I have this idea. I know it's right. We're going to roll it out through the whole hospital and spend a ton of money. And it's the same risk as the big batch specification document. And then when it's a larger test of change, I think it becomes scarier, more embarrassing, more humbling for someone to say, we, we, we took this big swing and it was wrong as opposed to the small test of change. But then I think, you know, that's compounded. You, you were talking about an example there of a CEO having an idea. As, uh, uh, what, what's what's the, the, the acronym of, um, of HIPPO, the, the highly important, yeah. uh, highly paid, highest yeah, paid high, person uh, in the room, basically, they can't be wrong. Yeah. I mean, what that that's politically risky when the analytics are pointing out that the CEO's pet project or idea isn't panning out. I mean, mm-hmm. I have thoughts on how to address that conundrum. You, you know, I just had this conversation right before I jumped on with you um, with somebody who um, she's the first product manager in a in a startup founder led founder was the the CEO is now who was the first product person, right, taking that over. And I think that's an issue I hear from like a lot of people. It's like, how do I work with this person? They have a million ideas. They're like, got all these ideas, but I can't keep up with them all. And I explain to people like, no matter where the ideas come from, right, your job as a product manager is to help provide structure around it and talk about the pros and cons of doing those ideas. Your job is not to basically 
dismiss every idea that comes your way, right? Every idea is a good idea, but that's just it. That's where it ends, right? It's a good idea, but now is it good in execution? That's what we have to figure out. So I tell people, especially when you have a CEO coming to you with an idea, your response should be like, that sounds fantastic. Cool. What a great idea. I'm going to go do my job now, which is to run some numbers on that. And then I'm going to come back to you with a, with a plan, right? And that's where you go back and you experiment around it. And you say, hey, we tested this out and we found like, but you start, I would say too, before you run off, you say, what do you expect that to do, right? Great idea. What do you expect to happen when we actually build this? Will it increase revenue? Will it stop churn? Will it like um, get us new market share or anything like that? Like, what do you expect to actually happen? So you take that, you experiment around it, and then you come back and you tell them like, okay, so we ran some of the experiments around it and we found that this is as much as we could possibly get from that. Is that good for you? Right? Like you, you put the ball back in their court. Is it is that sound like something that you're willing to go after? And if they say yes, you'd be like, okay, this is how it changes our current roadmap. So are you willing to sacrifice X, Y, and Z on our current roadmap to go after those things? Or would you prefer us to finish what we're currently working on? Right? It's all about presenting trade-offs and risks and and helping people make decisions. It's not necessarily about making all the decisions yourself. And, and I, I looked it up because I totally botched the acronym. I had it conceptually. Hippo is the highest paid person's opinion. Yeah. And, and, and that's risky when, when data butts up against that. I mean, you, there's, there's risk, I think you've touched on, and I've run across this. There's what people say they want to do with software. There's what people mm-hmm. say they're going to buy. But I think one, one thing that's test, uh, powerful about the lean startup methodology, and we can relate this to other areas, is, okay, Trust, but verify. Like people say they want to do that, but how do you go test that for real? They say they're going to buy it versus they actually punch in their credit card numbers. That's that's two very different things. I mean, I've seen oh, yeah. two different times over a decade where people in healthcare organizations say they want to collaborate and share improvement ideas, not just within their organization, but across organizational boundaries. But then they don't really do it. And so yes. it's a matter of like just not figuring out the execution or am I going to just stop believing people when they say, we want a website so I can share ideas, uh, people outside my organization can access. Because then there are so many reasons, legal, embarrassment, what, like sharing process improvement ideas in a way is highlighting something that wasn't ideal. I think people then when it really comes down to it, they're like, oh, I don't want to type that into some system. That's going to make me look bad, and, and and it sort of breaks down in practice. That's one of my experiences with something like that. Yeah, I see that a lot too in product. Like, um, I think a lot of it comes down to culture as well of an organization. Uh, like on my podcast, I talked to Gib Biddle about how they do learning at Netflix, and a lot of what Netflix does is so characterized by tons of experimentation. And you know, he points out in in like when we were talking, you said it, we had to all be willing to look at those numbers and say like, yeah, we shouldn't do that. And it was because we all had the best interest of the company at heart. He's like, even our CEO, it wasn't about him. It was about building the company. And, you know, th- we were willing to make the hard decisions if they weren't the right decisions, even if it like bruised people's ego. And I think that's the culture you need in any organization to be able to introduce experimentation. So like y- you have to have the the ability to look at everything. Like what, when I'm talking about too, like product managers showing the CEO stuff and letting them make the choice, like 
it's great to do with a difficult CEO, right? Like you, you, when somebody's, when it's touchy or when you're worried about hurting somebody's feelings, like that's what you do in a good organization. Hopefully the product manager could come back and say, we shouldn't do this and be respected for that opinion. And the CEO might say like, I have reasons why we need to, that's totally fine. But, you know, I feel like in some organizations, it's not safe to, um, to kill the ideas or to say that's a bad decision, especially when it's with management, even if you have all the data in the world to prove it. Mm-hmm. And those organizations, I think, um, will struggle with anything like this. They're just going to struggle, I think, to build great products because um, you can't talk about building great products there, right? Like you can't have the conversations that you need to have to say, are we all moving towards our goals? Um, because you're worried about stepping on people's toes. And, you know, you I think there's this catch-22 where as engineers or as entrepreneurs, you know, we might want to be data-driven, but then we're also trying to be optimistic. Or else, you know, why, why else would you start a company? Why else would you launch oh, a yeah. product? So when you get to day three and that story you were describing, the big launch, maybe people logged in once and never came back. Maybe that's what was happening. And then it, 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 it trailed down um, to day three, nobody logging in. How many days of nobody logging in do you have to go through before you say, you know what, this, we, we, maybe we should pull the plug on this versus the optimist who says, well, we just haven't figured it out yet. We just need more time. We just need to promote it better. Like, you know, the, all the defensive slash optimistic <laughs> responses start coming in. I mean, there, there is, would you say, I mean, there, there's an art to evaluating an experiment of when do you say, oh, yeah. Ugh, pull the plug on this or we need to completely pivot versus refinement of it. Yeah. I mean, uh, huge art, hard to do. Uh, I've been part of a, a, another team that I was working with. Um, you know, we were experimenting because that's what the leadership wanted them to do, right? Like I'm coaching this team. They're like run experiments. Um, and it was around conversion rate and we were changing a million different things on the site and nothing was actually changing. And everybody was like, it's just because we don't have the right idea yet. So try this promotion, try that promotion, try that. And nobody wanted to stop and say, it's actually because we don't know what the problem is. We don't know why people aren't signing up, right? Like we don't know why people aren't buying. Yeah. So stop throwing solutions was, out there. Exactly, right? And and we, that's, good lean, that's good lean problem solving. Yeah. And to say it was, what's the problem, sorry. Yeah. yeah, like getting to the root of it. Um, yeah, I got caught up in it too. It's like, cool, we could test all these ideas. And you can test a million ideas. You can run experimentation. I call it experimentation theater because i that's not the only <laughs> company I've seen that does that, right? It's like, oh, as long as we're running experiments, we'll be fine. But they're not actually doing the first thing, which is get to the root of the problem and then run experiments around the different solutions. They just experiment and experiment until uh, just to check a box, right? Like, hey, we have an experimentation in our in our team. And I don't think experimentation is easy to do well. Like I think, um, so I run like an example too that I see as well, because I think everybody's just really output focused because it's, uh, uh, I'm going on so many tangents, but (laughs) one of the things that I do is teach people the product kata, which is basically Toyota kata, but how do you apply it and experiment around products? And one of the things that I do see uh, junior product managers do, which I didn't expect actually, um, was try to fill up as many rows as possible in the different experimentations. So I'll like pop it into a Google sheet for them and let them go through the process of running through the kata, basically defining like 
what's the problem we're solving? Um, what do we need to learn next? You know, how are we going to learn it? What's the experiment we're going to run to do that? What did we learn? And then reflecting on it. And each one of those will be a row. And I've walked into some teams where they'll have 250 rows the last like three weeks. And I was like, ah, how many experiments did you run? But the question is also like, why? Why did you run 250 experiments? Like what, what were you trying to learn here? Um, and the big issue is like they don't stop and get to that problem that we were talking about. But I think the other issue too is that we, we judge people for success based on these outputs, right? Rather than the outcomes. And the overall company success or the project success usually eventually will get judged by an outcome. Like, you know, you launch a product that doesn't do anything for five years, eventually that product will get shut down or, or revamped or something. But five years is too long to wait to actually analyze that. And we're not really getting that feedback loops faster. But that's because we're focusing on measuring the success of our teams by how much they do put out. So I have seen teams get rewarded for running 50 experiments. Like I saw, I had one team that had a goal of running 50 experiments a quarter. And I was like, but why? Like, why should they run 50 experiments, right? Like, what are you actually experimenting around? It's not, it's not a good goal because it's not getting to those outcomes. But I think it's, it's so much easier to measure outputs, right? Those, those velocity metrics we talk about, those uh, how many experiments did you run, anything like that, than it is to measure the outcomes because that requires a lot more analysis and a lot more digging. And I think we just get comfortable yeah. with that. I see a lot of that in different settings. What you're describing is experiment theater. I see or hear about in some organizations that in the lean framework, we're doing uh, A3 problem solving. They're being measured on how many A3s, like how many of the templates they fill out, which can be problematic. That's um, activity or output versus outcomes or impact. Even worse is when they're really kind of going through the motions of, not, you know, not, you know, the A3 should be framed as an experiment, like you're saying. Make sure we really understand the problem, the current state, root causes, then start talking about potential countermeasures that we test experimentally. The A3 theater would be when someone says, well, I know what the solution is, so I'm going to go through the motions and fill out the form in a way that works backward to my preordained solution. I'm like, what's the, what's the point? And, and, and do we really expect that that's going to lead to better outcomes than a more rigorous, authentic use of, of the methodology? But I think it goes to show, again, you know, you, you can have some sort of tool, but without the mindset or the culture, it might not work the same as it would at Toyota or some great software development house. Exactly. And I think that gets back into what you're talking about. Like, all of this comes down to culture. Like, do we really understand as a company what our goals are are we all bought into reaching those goals right like instead of personal pet projects um are we all willing to sit here and admit that we are wrong at certain points right we made a mistake favorite mistake right here um that culture needs to be in place before any of this could work and that, and that, that's my, my passion around trying to develop that culture that's that's one of my reasons for doing this podcast is sort of normalizing yeah. and it, it, exploring this idea of um, there are a lot of good hypotheses or plausible hypotheses that don't work out in practice. That's a long way of saying mistake. That's one type of mistake, maybe not yeah. the worst kind of mistake. Um, 
So I, I want to uh, touch on a couple other things before we have to wrap up here. One is tell us a little bit about the book, The Build Trap. And I think you've alluded to some of what is behind that title. But what do you mean by The Build Trap? What, what's the kind of nutshell summary of that? Yeah, it is basically what we were doing uh, before I started measuring our success. Uh, and I see a lot of other companies get into it, like we had talked about. It is kind of how we learned how to do waterfall product management it is how uh, companies typically operate, which is you keep building and building and building, but you're never stopping to think, is that the right thing to build? How does this relate back to our goals? How do we make sure we're on the right path uh, before you commit to going down those paths? Um, so that's why I wrote the book. Uh, I saw it in a ton of companies after Open Sky. Um, I saw a lot of people struggling to get out of it. I get tons of questions about how to set up good product management to get out of it every single day. And that that was really the impetus of writing the book. So it's about really how do you set up a whole product management organization that will get you out of the build trap that that um, creates and tests a strategy and and figures out what's the right thing to build and operates on that process and then sets up a sets up an infrastructure to scale that decision making across the organization. And I guess it's a trap because it sounds good, but it's not. That's why it, exactly. well, it, you know, a, a good trap draws people in for some reason, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's comfortable. I mean, it is hard to get out of this trap. And I, a lot of companies uh, that I talk to are like, tell me all these super successful uh, transformation stories of companies who've gotten out of this. And I've asked all my friends as well. And there's a couple. There are a couple good transformation stories out there, but I don't know if any company is doing it 100% perfectly all the time. Uh, I think there's companies that generally do it most of the time, um, and they have a culture of learning. They have, um, you know, executives and teams that that question their ideas and and you know create strategy, and they're they're following this path most of the time. But I do think maybe you know every once in a while they do admit like, hey, yeah, we do get stuck in that and then we have to pull ourselves back out. So it's it's a slippery slope for sure. Well, and if the bar for who we might want to learn from and emulate is perfection, I mean, you know, Toyota people admit they're not perfect when it comes to mm -hmm. different principles or standards that we would look to Toyota for. And, you know, uh, you know uh, we shouldn't put any organization on so much of a pedestal that we're going to be... Uh, you know, completely disheartened if we hear, but but they didn't uphold that principle 100% of the time. Like, yeah. well, they're human. A company is made of humans and well-managed companies with a strong culture maybe help avoid some of these pitfalls, but um, every company backslides and um, that's, that's, you know, I've heard stories uh, that way about Toyota. When you think of like discipline around process and standard work, and there've been at least a couple of times I've heard stories from Toyota people around, and they've talked about this publicly, like, yeah, we kind of lost some of our discipline. We needed to go back in and take a, a closer look at um, at our standard work. And, and, and in a way, maybe that's reassuring to people so it doesn't set the bar so high. You can struggle. You can make some mistakes. But learn from it, get past it, get better is maybe a more realistic thing to do. Yeah, I think it's about uh, the exception versus the rule, right? Like if you are generally doing the things that you should be doing, Great. And if you have a couple instances where you decided not to follow them or something happened, you're human, like you said, right? Like it's 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 natural. I think a lot of companies end up in that situation. Um, but you're right, it's just about learning it. And 
I have people who read my book and sometimes be like, yeah, but do I have to do this all the time? Like, is this, is this like, I'm not a product led company if I don't check every single box in this book. And I'm like, no, do do you produce great products that your customers love? If the answer is yes, and you made a scalable business and the business is thriving and people love your product. Congratulations. I don't care if you don't do the product ops exactly how I describe it in the book. I don't care if you, uh, don't have a product strategy that matches the framework that I decided to teach you, right? Like you, right. you did good, good job. <laughs> and you know, Eric Reese to his credit is not certifying companies as I'm a certified lean startup. I think he would scoff at that whole idea. And to his credit, mm-hmm. there would be money to be made in certifying startups. Oh, there is. Yep. Um, and please, somebody listening, please don't do that. I think Eric, don't do that. Trade, Eric, <laughs> Eric trademarked the, the phrase, the lean startup, maybe to head off that exact <laughs> sort of thing there. Um, That's good. So I've, you know, I may have fallen into this trap myself. So I've mentioned Toyota and I'm passing along things that, you know, I've heard from former Toyota people. I'm not trying to throw them under the bus, but, you know, we, we, we have to be careful. I think, you know, so this is, uh, you know, whether we're giving speeches on stage or, or podcasting, like, oh, something that's recorded and out there forever. Um, I'm not throwing under, Melissa under the bus here. She knew I was good to bring this up. But this conversation here um, is actually sort of version 2.0. Um, the first time we went about this, um, do you, can I ask you to describe yeah. what, what happened, Melissa? Yeah. I was telling um, a story, I think, because it was super fresh in my mind, too, of an experience I just went through. Um I was telling a story about a more recent mistake that I made uh, that I was trying to learn from. And I think I've been reflecting on it a lot. So it was like good to process it and talk about it. But I did did name some names and I reflected on it after listening and said, you know, I, I don't feel good about that because I don't, the way I portrayed it came off negative. And I don't think it was a negative experience, but the way I talked about it and I named, named some names, you know, made it sound like a negative experience. And I was like, oh, I don't want to represent it that way. Um, and we start getting into the conversation afterwards, too, about that of like sometimes, you know, I, I learned this much earlier on, too. Like I was doing a conference once and I, I name dropped a um, long time ago, long time ago. Uh, name dropped a, uh, I didn't name drop a client, but I described a client in there and they saw themselves in the description. They, they ended up watching it as hopefully your clients watch your stuff. Um, they did. And they said, we don't really feel good about how you portrayed us in it. Like we know that you didn't name our name, but like uh, I'm worried that people at our company will watch it and feel disheartened because you described our journey and we are struggling. Uh, but like, I want people to try. And that made me really reflect on that and say like, yeah, everybody's going through a change and especially in, you know, our line of work, a lot of people are going on these transformations. Um, it's fantastic when you can tell a story about how we made a crazy mistake and we learned from it and it had a beautiful shining silver lining afterwards. Uh, but you got to give those mistakes a chance to be learned from before you can go bashing them. And I think it's easy to like get into a habit of being like, Oh, look at all this negative stuff that people do and, you know, make fun of it a little bit. Um, And it provides some really fun commentary. But at the same time, you have to like allow people to process that and change and get better from it. And most of the 
companies that I have worked with like have. Um, so I reflect on that a lot. And we, I did end up going back and like having that edited out of the talk and everything. Cause I realized like, yeah, I don't want to portray that company like that. This is the beginning of their journey. They're going to learn and they have learned. I like, I keep in touch with them. They're doing fantastic now. Uh, they have learned they're doing great now. They got out of some bad habits, but everybody deserves some change process. And, and that's why we, we kind of took, took a step back and, uh, and redid this with this, with, bleh, with this story. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I'm glad you reached out and, um, you know, brought that up and I was happy to redo, um, a second episode and, and, you know, kind of empathetic to the situation. Um, you know, because again, I slightly younger me loved to write blog posts that would go on a rant about, you know, some organizations highlighted in the Wall Street Journal and to them lean office means putting tape around the staplers on everybody's desk and banning family photos and saying you're not allowed to put a sweater on the back of your chair. Now, I think that's all nonsense and it's ridiculous and I could write a ranty blog post about it. But what then you know, at some point I stepped back and, and kind of reflected a little bit on like and then getting that off my chest and allowing some readers who are in the know to also feel superior by reading and looking down on this other company. I, I'd like to think I do a lot less of that. And, you know, I, I, I wrote a book um, with a bunch of other authors called practicing lean, which was kind of from the spirit of, like you were saying, everyone's on a journey. When I was early in my journey, I did things that older me might have written a ranty blog post about. And so mm-hmm. it's just, you know, having other people share, their stories about the mistakes they've made early in their career. I think as a reminder, it's a continual reminder my, to myself to try to be a little bit more kind. When people are trying, they're well-intended. Hopefully they're learning things. Like when their employees start pushing back and saying, that's BS that I can't have a family photo on the desk. Like I would, you know, um, anyway, that's, that's, that's my view on that. So I, you know, that's why I, you know, I appreciate that. We could at least have some of that discussion about, as you put it, being careful about naming names and, and sharing examples. What what's the spirit or the context? Yeah, exactly. So um, this has been beating myself up for mistakes, but no, that's not the name of the podcast. Um, but um, I'm glad we could explore that a little bit, Melissa, because um, we we for for the audience we we had talked before recording. Like, do we just pretend that never happened, or could we talk about it? I think what you shared. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we could talk about that a little bit. Me too. And if it was a mistake, I could have just edited it out, but I don't think we're going <laughs> to. No, I think we're good. <laughs> I think we're, we're good. good this time. All right. So our guest again has been uh, Melissa Perry. You can learn about all the different things she does. Her website's melissaperry.com. I'll link to it in the show notes. Again, her book is Escaping the Build Trap, How Effective Product Management Creates Real Value. And her podcast is Product Thinking with... Melissa Perry. I didn't say that very smoothly. You say the word product all the time. Product thinking with Melissa Perry. Melissa, thank you for being a guest and thank you for suffering through my mistakes while you kind of reflect and share on some of your favorite mistakes. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you again to Melissa Perry for being a great guest today. To learn more about her and her book and work and more, go to markraven.com slash mistake nine six. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. 
and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.